Are you in college or know someone who is? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2025. Live steps from the Colosseum with like-minded students and explore the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. Don't miss this life-changing opportunity. Limited spots are available. For more information, go to thomisticinstitute.org slash Rome. That's thomisticinstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So, the talk is called Aquinas on Reason and Emotion. This talk is about reason and emotion in the thought of Thomas Aquinas. I will take those two topics in that order. Reason first and emotion second. There's a reason for that. Haha. <laughs> Emotions are based on reason. Along the way and at the end, I'll say a few things um, about how the two are related. So humans are capable, the first I'm going to talk about reason. Humans are capable of acting and operating, functioning in a variety of ways. Some of them are shared with all other living things. Some of them are shared only with some living things. And some of them are uniquely human as far as we know. Reason is our highest power. But it's important to see it in the context of our other powers. So to begin with, human beings have what Aristotle calls vegetative power. The vegetative powers are shared by all living things, even plants. But, and they include nutrition, bodily maintenance, and reproduction. Living things take in nourishment from the environment they keep themselves steady despite changes in their activities and surrounding. For example, by maintaining a fairly constant blood pressure. And they reproduce according to their kind. Different kinds of organisms do this, do these things in different ways, but they all get it done somehow or other. And these operations take particular forms in the healing case forms that we are all at least roughly familiar with. Some organisms have a higher set of powers. We talk about sensation, appetite, and locomotion. These powers work together in ways that give rise to characteristically animal types of life, even if they sometimes take forms not found in humans. Unlike sea turtles, we cannot sense the Earth's magnetic field. Unlike birds, we cannot fly. Nonetheless, humans have their own versions of all of the basic animal powers. So first I'll mention sensation. We can see, we can hear, we can touch, we can taste and smell. There's, there's five, but they're not entirely separate abilities. 
Um, they, they're not in, completely independent of one another. So we're ex- and able to experience the bird that we are seeing as being also the same bird that we are hearing. And our, so our sensations come together to give us an awareness of unified object in a unified world. And traditionally, this is explained by appeal to a special kind of inner sense that brings together what we receive from the external senses into a, a shared picture, a unified or common picture, this unifying, unified sense, the traditional name for it in Latin is the sensus communis, which you could translate as the common sense, but that sounds funny because we use the word common sense to mean, you know, not going outside during a tornado or something like that. But the common sense means the shared sense that all of the five senses get brought together under. Okay, so appetite is related to sensation and perhaps especially to touch. So that's the next one to talk about. Um, Touch so often involves pleasure and pain. Um, So it looks like if you have touch, you're going to also have appetite. We do not simply perceive our surroundings. We're eager, we are drawn to engage with them in certain ways, and we're provoked to withdraw from them in certain other ways. Uh, We all know what it's like to smell pizza in the oven. So that's a sensation that just spontaneously gives rise to an appetite. Um, Or, you know, to notice that there's dog excrement on the sole of your shoe, which gives rise to a different sort of reaction. Um, or to feel pleasure at the sight of a friend, or dismay at the sight of someone we have recently offended. Appetite is an extremely important element of human life. To talk about appetite is to talk about the passions, but I don't want to say more about that now because that's what I'm getting to in the second part of the talk, the passions. Next comes locomotion. Locomotion is the ability to move from one location to another. And that is also an important part of human life. Most children quickly learn to walk and then to run. If we were always anchored in the same place in the way the trees or barnacles are, our lives would be diminished in very important ways. Okay, so all of these things are human powers, but they are powers that in one form or another are shared with non-human organisms. But there is one power that sets humans apart from any other organism that we know of, namely reason. Humans are, according to the philosophical cliche, rational animals, and reason is the key to human nature. The main role of the power of reason, obviously, is to allow us to think, and it's traditional to sort acts of thinking into three basic sorts, conceiving, judging, and reasoning. Conceiving means grasping the nature of something. It's sometimes called the first act of the mind. So we go go beyond mere perception of individual things, like a bird, to understand, for example, what it means to be a bird, or what it means to be warm-blooded. Judging is the second act of the mind, and in judging, we take concepts that we have already acquired and relate them to each other. We can join them, affirming that they belong together in a certain way. 
For example, we can assert that all two-legged animals are warm-blooded. Or we can divide them, denying that they belong together in a certain way. For example, we can assert that not all warm-blooded animals are two-legged. The third act of the mind is logical reasoning, in which we move from judgments to other judgments. This can allow us to gain new knowledge, or it can simply allow us to grasp relationships among things we already know. Here is a simple example. Birds are warm-blooded, ducks are birds, therefore ducks are warm-blooded. If we hadn't already known whether ducks were warm-blooded, this piece of reasoning would assure us that they are. If we had already known it, we might still find it valuable to see that their warm-bloodedness is a result of their being birds, and not, for example, a result of their having wings. Rational thought can be deployed both theoretically and practically. A practical use of reason involves figuring out what to do. We reason practically, for example, when we deliberate about which road to take or about whether to drive a car or take the train instead. A theoretical use of reason does not involve pragmatic, practical intent. We think simply because we want to understand or know. Instead of attempting to change the way things are, we are simply receptive, allowing ourselves to become aware of how the world is. Some people seem to believe that they never engage in theoretical reasoning, that they are always practical in their thinking, but I'm skeptical of this. If you tell someone that all two-legged animals are warm-blooded, there's pretty good chance they'll say, really? And they'll wonder, at least for a second, whether this is really true. Think of how people rubberneck where there's a car accident. They're just looking. They're not paramedics. They just want to know. Window shopping is another example. So these are cases where we don't need to know what's going on, but we want to know. We often use our power to think um, in, a, in an intentional way to facilitate the workings of our other powers. For example, we can change our diets so as to lower our blood pressure, or we can climb up on a rock so as to be able to see over a bush that's in the way. In cases like these, our acts of thinking do not in and of themselves alter our blood pressure or our vision. Rather, our thoughts, our practical thoughts, lead us to act in ways that enable our circuit, sorry, our thoughts, our practical thoughts lead us to act in ways that enable our circulatory or visual systems to do their jobs better. It is almost as if our thinking leads us to act on ourselves from the outside. But sometimes, reason is related to our other powers in a far more intimate fashion. For one thing, reason is built upon sensation. As the old saying goes, whatever is in the intellect was first in the senses. To grasp concepts and to judge and reason with them goes beyond mere sensation, but it begins there. If we rational animals had no sensation of any sort, we could not think at all. 
our rationality grows out of our animal sensibility. The influence is mutual, however. It can be hard to notice at first, but reason affects and informs our sense perception. Knowing a language, for example, makes the very, vocaliz the, the very vocalizations that we hear sound different. If someone's speaking a language that you don't know, it sounds like a bunch of sound. But when you know the language, then all of a sudden it sounds different and you perceive it, words and in fact you grasp concepts. And it, it actually takes an effort to hear words as mere sounds. Uh, and not everyone is equally good at doing this. Similarly, it takes effort to see written words as mere shapes or even as mere collections of letters. If you copy out an ordinary word many times in a row, it may all of a sudden lose its familiarity and therewith it may, so to speak, lose its status for you as a word. You'll, you might have to check whether you're spelling it correctly. So that reveals that up until that time, you were only seeing it as linguistically and rationally meaningful. For still another example, one persuasive explanation of why some people are better at drawing than other people is that the ones who are better at it are able to see objects merely as collections of lines and surfaces. People who are bad at drawing know that books are rectangular and try to draw them that way, while artists see that when the book is oriented in a, from a certain angle, some of the angles appear as greater than 90 degrees and sun is lesser than 90 degrees. I know a painter who says, I have a bachelor's degree in looking at things. So that's like what art school teaches you how to do. It's not only sensation that is influenced by reason, but appetite as well. Suppose you are enjoying some cooking. And then suppose I mention, ever so casually, that they were made not with ordinary lard, but with rendered fat from rats. You might be reluctant to ask for more, or even to finish the one that you were working on. And not merely because you might judge that there was some health risk involved. You wouldn't perhaps find that the cookies no longer tasted as good. And that your hunger for them had significantly decreased. This is a case of reason or thought informing desire. It's not merely that reason leads you to resist your desire, but that reasoning has led your desire, your very desire itself, to become different. It's your desires that modify. Similar things can happen with desires that are less immediately sensory. You may find it frustrating to wash dishes. But if you remind yourself that this is a way of serving others, it may become less burdensome, perhaps even pleasant. Your desires will have changed because of the way you think about them. But now, for a second time, let me cut myself off and stop talking about appetite, pushing that to the next main section. I have mentioned the distinction between theoretical and practical uses of reason. Both are important. But now I want to bring out a way, one way, in which the theoretical has priority over the practical, regardless of whether the practical has priority over the theoretical in some other way, the theoretical has priority in this way. 
unless we have apprehensions of the world, unless we have sensations or concepts or judgments, unless we just take in the way the world is, we can't have any other specifically human operations. To bring out what I mean, let me shift focus slightly and talk about a distinction that grows out of the work of the philosopher Elizabeth Anza. The direction, the, sorry, the distinction between mental operations with the mind-to-world direction of fit and mental operations with the world-to-mind direction of fit. Seeing or believing have mind-to-world direction of fit. What's supposed to happen is that our vision, our seeing, or our beliefs fit the world, fit the way the world actually is. We see elephants that are really there rather than merely hallucinating. Our beliefs are true rather than false. But other mental operations have world-to-mind direction to fit. Desiring or wishing or hoping, for example, are not aimed at fitting with the world. On the contrary, they are, if anything, aimed at changing the world so that it fits with what is in our minds. If I believe that my kitchen floor is dry, but it isn't, I change my belief. If I want my kitchen floor to be dry, but it isn't, I change the floor. What I mean by the priority of the theoretical over the practical, then, is this. All mental states or operations with mind-to-world direction of fit are built on mental states or operations with mind-to-world direction of fit. I can't wish for the kitchen floor to be dry unless I already have the concept of a kitchen floor and the concept of dryness and the belief that I have a wet kitchen floor. Practical action-oriented mental operations, like wishing and desiring, always presuppose prior mental operations that are theoretical in the sense that they are aimed not at changing the world, but at assessing how it is. Earlier, I was using theoretical to highlight a certain use of reason, and that usage still stands. But here, I want to relax. The, I want to relax the concept for a little bit to include sensation. Seeing is not believing, not literally, but seeing is like believing, in the sense that both have mind-to-world direction of fit. And such theoretical operations, operations whose nature consists in an attempt to grasp or assess or see what the world is like, those operations, I'm saying, are more basic and fundamental and primordial than anything else in our mental life. I say in our mental life and not simply in our life because some aspects of human life can go along without any thought or perception. Our hearts, for example, beat without any intervention of thought. But such operations, operations that happened at the vegetative level, down here, those operations are not specifically human. Insofar as we are talking about what makes humans human, about what makes them be rational animals, we are talking about operations that are related to reason, which is built upon sensation. The bottom line is that the practical aspects of our lives and the practical powers that make them possible are underwritten by our theoretical and receptive power. Before we change the world, we must first take it in.
Now, it might be objected here that in the case of emotional people, and we're all pretty emotional at times, in the case of emotional people, you might object, desires and wishes take the lead in a way that constrain and even modify beliefs. That this happens often enough is captured in the phrase wishful thinking. However, the existence of wishful thinking does not undercut the priority of the theoretical and the receptive for the following reason. In cases of wishful thinking, the wishes that distort belief are always rooted in prior beliefs. If I believe against all reasonable expectations that the store is still open, and my error is rooted in my hope that it's open because I want to buy my wife a birthday card, my hope and desire are still rooted in my prior belief that the store is there, that it is my wife's birthday, and so on. So receptive mind-to-world mental states always have the last word, or rather, the first word. Okay, now you'll notice for the third time now, I've slipped from reason to appetite. It's unsurprising, really, because appetite and reason are very intertwined in human life. So let's just move on and start talking about the passions. Aquinas' word we're going to use now. What are passions? Leaving a few complications aside for now, a passion, in Aquinas' way of speaking, is an appetitive reaction, a desiring kind of reaction, an appetitive reaction to an apprehended good or evil. Actually, I'll write it. An appetitive reaction to an apprehended good or Okay, that's the path. I'm, and now I'm going to just stand in front. Right. It's not just any kind of reaction. It has to do with appetite. So, for example, if I see a bird, I may grasp intellectually that it's a boat-tailed grackle. I saw one on your campus early. I may grasp intellectually that it's a boat-tailed grackle, but unless my appetite is engaged, my reaction isn't a passion. For example, maybe I want to get closer and take a look. That desire to get closer is an appetite. So now we're dealing with a passion. If by contrast, I don't know, some past trauma makes me fear boat-tailed grackles, and I have an urge to run away, that's also an appetite. So that, again, is a passion. Now, appetite always concerns things that we apprehend as good or evil. On Aquinas' way of thinking, everything is good to some extent, and many things are flawed and therefore bad to some extent. But not all reactions are based on the goodness or the badness of the things that we are reacting to. If I see a $20 bill lying on the sidewalk, but I don't think of it as good, I won't, for example, desire to pick it up. I won't desire it unless I first think of it as good. And the same applies to something bad. If I see some dog excrement on the sidewalk, I won't desire to avoid it 
unless I somehow think of it as bad. Finally, it's important to focus not on what is good or bad, but on what we apprehend as good or bad, what we perceive or think of as good or bad. Passion follows apprehension, even if apprehension is misapprehension. If I see a $20 bill lying on the sidewalk, but I think it's just a scrap of paper, I won't desire to pick it up. I might desire to throw it away. If I see some lemonade, but I don't realize that it's poisoned, I might desire to drink it. So whether a passion is aroused and which passion is aroused depends not on whether something is good or bad, but on whether we perceive or apprehend it as good or bad. To repeat then, an appetite is an impetitive, is an appetitive, a passion is an appetitive reaction to something apprehended as good or evil. Now let me clarify a few things. First, I think you will probably agree that in this context, the word good doesn't sound crazy. The $20 bill is good. Lemonade is good, and so on. But when we see evil in this context, it might sound crazy. Dog excrement is bad, but surely it's not evil. Well, in Latin, the word for anything bad is malum, and usually malum gets translated as evil, even when we are talking about something that wouldn't normally be called evil in ordinary English. So if you stub your toe, that's evil in this special technical philosophical sense. It sounds significantly less crazy if you say it slightly differently. If you say not, it's evil, but it's an evil. So somebody might say stubbed toes are among the evils that afflict people to spend time at the boardwalk. So when you put it that way, it doesn't sound quite so, quite so crazy. Anyway, you get used to it after a while, speaking like this, um, if you get into philosophy. But you also have to be careful to avoid using this terminology outside of philosophical topics, philosophical conversations, where everyone will think there's something wrong with you. So just like be careful. Um, second, so that was the first point, just how we use the word evil. Second, passions always have an object. You don't just desire. You desire something, a banana, or to get closer to the boat-tailed grackle or something. You don't just hate, you hate something, and so on. Perhaps you aren't sure which thing you desire or hate for whatever, but there must be something. Third, there's a somewhat technical distinction that Aquinas sometimes makes a fuss about and sometimes doesn't to make a fuss about. Some passions involve the body and some do not. If you desire to eat some pizza, this probably involves some bodily reaction like salivating or something like that. If you desire to get closer to a boat-tailed grackle, however, it's probably just an intellectual desire. At times, Aquinas uses the word passion only for the first kind of passion, the kind that gets implemented in the body. When he's using the word passion in that restricted way, he'll call the other passions something else, like affection. 
we can call anything we want. We could call the first type passion passions and the second type intellectual passions or whatever. And also it's important to remember that the line between them isn't hard and fast. If you've never seen a boat-tailed grackle before, your heart bites are pounding. So sometimes intellectual appetites spill over into the body. We are rational animals, and sometimes activities that happen on the rational side have an overflow down into our animal part. Now I said that sometimes Aquinas makes the fuss about this distinction, and sometimes she doesn't. In this talk, I'm not going to make a fuss about it. To understand your own life and the lives of other people, it's very helpful to be aware of which passions are at play, but in many contexts, it just doesn't matter whether the passions are bodily passions or not. Think of two guys who neglect their families, one because he's controlled by a love of mathematics, the other because he's controlled by a love of football. It's likely enough that the football guy's passions, like excitement and anger, are more bodily than those of the math guy. But that's not the crucial issue if you're the spiritual advisor or the marriage counselor. This guy needs to get control over his passion, over his appetite, who needs to subordinate his desires to his calling as a husband. And it just doesn't matter that the math guy is screwing up his life for a spiritual reason. It's still a screw. So from now on, when we talk about passions, I'm just going to lump them all together under the heading of passions, as Aquinas himself sometimes does. And instead, I'm going to focus on, different, on a different way of distinguishing among the passions. And it's mostly based on the objects of the passion, what the passions are passions about. It gets very complicated. I'm going to give a start, but we could spend an entire semester talking about this. Aquinas lists 11 passions. First, we'll talk about love and hate. You love something if you apprehend it as good, and you hate it if you apprehend it as bad. Let me add right away that Aquinas is using these words more broadly than we do nowadays. Think about mashed potatoes. They're fine, right? If you knew it was going to be mashed potatoes for dinner tonight, you'd probably be okay with that. On Aquinas' terminology, you have love for mashed potatoes. But we wouldn't normally say that in 21st century English. That just sounds ridiculous. And normally would we say, would we say that we have hatred for when our shoes come untied? But in Aquinas' technical philosophical example, that's in his technical philosophical vocabulary, that's an example of hatred. Okay. So when you think of love and hate in this context, just you don't don't include the idea that they have to come to count as big passive love or hate. You just have love for mashed potatoes and hatred for when your shoe comes on time. Okay, now let's move on to desire and aversion. These get us moving. If you encounter something you love, you desire to get it. If you encounter something you hate, an aversion arises. You want to get away from it. Maybe your desire isn't very strong, but it's there. And the same with aversion. If it's a hot day and I want to step into the shade, that's a case of desire. 
If I see a puddle and I don't want to step in it, that's a case of aversion. Now let's measure, now let's mention two more, pleasure and pain. These are the passions that arise when we actually get joined to good things or bad things. When you eat the mashed potatoes, you enjoy it. When you step in the puddle, it bothers you. Again, the words don't have to indicate strong feeling. In our normal everyday speech, if I said that I stepped into a puddle and I felt pain as a result, you would probably think I was some kind of cis. But in Aquinas' lingo, that's just the word you use. It's a very, very mild pain. Now let me insert and add a terminological point. Aquinas sometimes restricts the word pleasure for passion passions, passions that involve the body, and he uses the word joy for the intellectual verb. And likewise, he sometimes uses pain only for bodily pain and slur for intellectual pain. But let's remember that intellectual joy or sorrow can spill over into the body. When someone you love dies, the pain is primarily in your mind, but it spills over pretty strongly into your body. Okay, so now we need to shift to a rather different sort of consideration. As we have seen, there's a trio of love, desire, pleasure for something that we apprehend as good, and there's a trio of hatred, aversion, pain for something that we apprehend as bad. But Aquinas thinks that sometimes it's more complicated than this. It all depends on whether the good or bad in question is what he calls an arduous one. Imagine walking down the sidewalk and seeing a $10 bill. You love money in Aquinas' sense, and you desire it, so you just pick it up, and the result is pleasure. Easy, okay? But suppose the money is way up at the top of a tree. That would be pretty hard to get. This is not just a good, it's an arduous good, a difficult good. Likewise, imagine walking down the sidewalk and seeing some dog excrement. You hate dog excrement in Aquinas' sense of fully, and you experience aversion to it, so you just go around, avoiding the pain of stepping in. But suppose instead of dog excrement, there's a dog, and it's chasing you. This is not only something that you want to get away from. It's something that's hard to get away from. It's difficult to get away from. And this is not just a sad. It's an arduous bad. An arduous evil, actually. I'm saying bad. Okay. So Aquinas thinks that the passions that we experience in the face of arduous goods and arduous bad are more complicated. We do desire arduous but we also experience either hope or despair with regard to that. So we love the arduous good, and we desire it, but we also have hope or despair. We desire arduous goods, but we also experience hope or despair with regard to them. If we think we can get them, we feel not only desire, but also hope. And if we think we can't get them, we feel despair. As for arduous baths, arduous evils, we experience either fear or daring. Sometimes people translate daring audacity, which is kind of more dashing. If we think 
Okay, so these are the arduous bats, right? We, we, we have an aversion to them, but on top of that, we have either fear or daring. If we think that we cannot get away from them, we feel fear. If we think we can attack them and make them go away, we feel daring. Hope and daring make a hope. Now notice this distinction crossing the line here. Hope and daring make us go towards the object of our passion, towards the good thing to get it, or towards the bad thing to get it before it gets us. Despair and fear make us go away from the object of our passion. We turn away from the good object in despair, or we run away from the bad object in fear. So far, there are mere 10 passions. Love and hate, desire and aversion, hope and despair, fear and daring, pleasure and pain. Aquinas thinks there's one more, anger. We're just going to sort of stick it off on the side here. Anger is the counterattack passion. If you encounter an arduous evil and you fail to escape it, then you might wish to take revenge on it, if you think you can. That's, what, that's his analysis to think. Now, you may not agree with all of this in every detail, but I'm going to guess that you'll agree at least with a lot of this. For example, you probably agree that fear arises only when the object we are encountering is both bad and hard to get away from. Nobody's afraid of mashed potatoes because they're good. And nobody's afraid of puddles because they're easy to avoid. But just because ideas like this seem familiar and even obvious doesn't mean the discussion has been pointless. One of the main jobs of philosophy is not to discover utterly new things, but to shed light and understanding on things that are familiar, but which we don't have very clear and organized thoughts on. When we hear good philosophy, our reaction is often not, wow, I never knew that, but instead something more along the lines of, oh yeah, that's right. It really is like that. Okay, you'll be glad to hear I'm almost done. Last section, on some relations between reason and the passions. I want to conclude then by commenting on some of the relations between reason and the passions. Mostly this will involve making explicit things that were already implicit in what was said earlier. Passions are an important part of human life. And not in the way that disease is a part of human life. Unlike disease, the passions are good. They are the ways in which we respond on the appetitive side of our nature to good and evil. To lack passions would mean ultimately that the difference between good and evil was something that we took no stand on, something that made no difference to our actions. Actually, it would mean something even more than that. Actions, by their very nature, are aimed at goods, or at least at apparent goods, things that we apprehend as good. Having no passion would mean that we literally could not act. So although I'm about to say a few things about the importance of keeping our passions under control, please don't misunderstand me as saying that the passions are automatically somehow bad. Like, that's completely wrong. Okay. Because passions fall from apprehensions of objects as good or bad, it's possible for a passion to be appropriate 
or in a free print. Nowadays, people like to say, your feelings are your feelings. And that's fine if what it means is that you always have to begin by acknowledging where you are. If you're upset about something, you might as well admit. Only then can you figure out how to deal with it. But sometimes people mean something else when they say your feelings are your feeling. They mean that there's no such thing as an incorrect feeling or an incorrect passion. And that is wrong. If you desire to drink something that has poison in it, that is an inappropriate passion. If you are angry at someone who hasn't done anything wrong, that too is an inappropriate passion. Passions need to be based on accurate, rational apprehensions of reality. If I'm angry at you, I will be wrongly angry if you haven't done anything bad. Furthermore, even if passions are based on accurate apprehensions of reality, something more is required. Our passions need to be proportionate to that reality. If you really have done something wrong, but my anger is excessive, then in that case too, I will be wrongly angry. In short, then, passions need to be subordinated to reason. They need to follow and obey reason. They're like a dog. A dog is a very fine thing, but it needs to obey the master. Now, I say this partly because it's true, just for philosophical, theoretical reasons. But also, I confess, I'm now going to invite you to join me in opposing a certain evil in our society. It's a rather arduous evil. It's the overly emotional and passionate nature of our society. So many people are just out of control. It's not enough to just sit there philosophically and praise the goodness of human passion and to affirm that strong passions can be a part of a virtuous life. Although that's true. People nowadays need to hear and to see modeled in our behavior the message that the passions ought to be subject to reason. Yeah, I'm teething that I'm trying to recruit them. I can always need to sign it. But I mean, just think about this, right? I think this is an issue. In some cases, I think it's kind of obvious. I suppose nobody would say that um, Americans are like insufficiently passionate about sex or money or something. But I want to mention something else, the one over on the right there, anger. It's true that there is such a thing as righteous anger. And it's true that insufficient anger is a fault. But when you notice how angry so many people are, so often, you might start to think that what we need as a society is to dial back on the anger. Aquinas says that the correct disposition towards anger is closer to being less angry than it is to being more angry. Now, I realize that this is a tricky issue. I won't be even a little bit surprised if someone says to me that the real problem with our society is that we aren't nearly angry enough. But I think that for every person who will be able to angry enough, there are probably 10 who are too angry. It's not just that passions need to obey reason. It's also that when they don't obey reason, they tend to make reason even weaker than it was. That's because when our passions go astray, they cloud our reasoning. Think about people watching sports. Often they have a terrible time 
making objective judgments about the things that the referee says. But they always think that he's wrong when he makes a call against their team and right when he makes a call in favor of their team. Let me say it again. Passion, or rather inappropriate passion, clouds reason. This is not only bad in itself, it tends to snowball because further passions follow the clouded reason. If I'm wrongly angry at you, I will tend to interpret what you say and do in a bad light, and that will make me even more angry at you. Incorrect apprehension leads to inappropriate passion, leads to more incorrect apprehension, and so on. And if you don't believe me, look at social media. Okay, so to conclude, having good passions is a key part of being a flourishing human being, but it's very hard because it requires that those passions be subject to reason, which is a hard thing to accept and a harder thing to accomplish. The gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So is this, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I think Aquinas would say that if you really want to get to act, your act together, you have to rely on divine grace. I mean, he, well, I know he. Um, so if you think, oh, this is too hard for me, you're probably right. Um, but you're not supposed to do it by yourself. Okay, that's all. I'm done. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.